Good afternoon. I am Jeff Smelser, and this is Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. And we are going to be continuing our study of the book of Revelation today. We have Joe Works here uh, from Elmira, New York, and he's going to be leading the discussion as he has been all through this study. Chase Byers here from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So, guys, let's get into it. Well, thanks for setting me up to be blamed for everything that people disagree with. Uh, I appreciate that, Jeff. You are very welcome, and that is obviously the purpose of my mentioning the fact that you are the one who's been leading us through this study. <laughs> well, I am I am willing to take the heat, uh, but let me just mention that I do that humbly. Um, uh, there are things in these chapters that are maybe uh, confusing or, or difficult to determine with specificity exactly what's being talked about in every phrase. You know, I'm, I'm not even sure that we're always supposed to, with specificity, determine everything. I think some of this is more impressionistic. Um, yeah. And I think that's part of the trouble. People get into this wanting to interpret everything and find some specific event in history, either in the past or the future, that refers to. It's not always some specific event. Right. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. so Specifically, we're in chapters 19 and 20 today, right? Oh, that, that is specific. <laughs> that is, that, yes, that, that I, is. Yes. I just felt left out. I wanted to use the word specific. <laughs> but, you, but, but you didn't say it the way that Jeff and I did, so you have to say specificity. We'll let it go. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to dox you over that. Um, <laughs> in, in chapters 19 and 20, then, let's just review really briefly here. Jumping back to chapter 14, verses 6 through 13, you have these three angels and then a voice. And I mentioned at that time that I think that's an outline for the next eight chapters. The first angel talks about the everlasting gospel being preached and that everybody needs to fear God and give him glory uh, for his judgment has come. They need to worship him. And that's what's talked about in chapters 15 and 16. The second angel, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, 14, verse 8. And then that's the statement that's made in Revelation 17 and 18. And so then the third angel says in verse 9, For the third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of the, their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, who receives the mark of his name. Now, I agree completely that what we ought to do is see big picture and symbolism and imagery and just recognize that Satan is regularly or constantly, I don't know what the best word is, using different beasts that, you know, whether it's military power or religious oppression and domination, those concepts of the sea beast and the land beast from chapter 13, that's, those are just tools that Satan has used since the beginning of time and continues to use. And so I think we need to keep that big picture in mind. But in the context of Revelation, we identified that sea beast, I believe, as Rome and uh, as particularly as Nero and Domitian, Revelation, 7, uh, Revelation 13 and Revelation 17. And so it gets tempting these last four chapters to want to press toward the end of the world and final judgment. I think we make a mistake when we press that way, when we have these statements and just maybe 
consider for a moment if this third angel in chapter 14 verses 9 through 11 what i read if that is what chapters 19 and 20 are talking about and i think that we're going to read almost those exact same words then we're still talking about the time of this beast and we're not necessarily looking at the end of the world um uh, so you know a lot of people would probably disagree with me on that and that's fine i'm happy to listen to other people's thoughts and, and even yours chase and, and jeff as we go along even us <laughs> even <laughs> even you all yes thank you I, for I catching that, that too yeah. yes yeah I, I i was hoping that wasn't going to escape your attention <laughs> so let's jump into chapter 19 then and see if it is talking about the torment that is going to come upon those who worship and serve the beast um, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. So one of you all want to read that? After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with their immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came out from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you, his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty uh, peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So you remember the fifth seal? Again, we're not going to be able to talk about every, you know, verse by verse or line by line here. But remember that fifth seal back in chapter 6, verses yeah, 9 through 11? the souls of the saints who had been slain for the word of God and the testimony which they held. And they're crying out, how long, O Lord, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood? And, and so what is, what's the statement at the end of verse 2 here? He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And mm -hmm. so they were crying out for that vengeance. Now, this is just a continuation of chapter 17 and 18. That great city, which we identified as Rome in chapter 17 and 18, we saw how the world was reacting. Remember, at the end of chapter 18, the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, the shipmasters, they were all weeping and lamenting about that. But heaven is rejoicing because God has uh, performed this judgment upon her, upon Rome, for killing the, the saints, Antipas and, and others. And so that's the answer that's given here in verse 2. The, uh, the 24 elders, the four living creatures are praising God for this. They're, they're all crying out, praise God. Verse 5, they're saying, give him glory in verse 7. And they're saying, worship God in, uh, in verse 10. Um, uh, certainly significant things that they need to be doing um, uh, of uh, service to God, uh, praising him, worshiping him, giving him glory. Um, and so, oh, go ahead. 
So Joe, so you you connect um, when the fifth seal is opened back in chapter six, and those souls cry out for judgment. With this passage here, the judgment is is wrought upon those who've afflicted God's people. Though for those who have enough of a grasp of the book of Revelation to have picked up on something we've talked about, namely that in chapters four through eleven, we kind of go through this description once, and we get to the culmination. And then we start over in chapter 12, and we go through it again. They may pick up on the fact that we're connecting here something in the first telling, chapter 6, verse uh, 9 and 10, uh, the soul's crying out for, for vengeance, with something in the second telling, way over here in chapter 19. Yeah. But we may remember that in the first telling, they cried out for vengeance in chapter 6, and then you get to chapter 10, I believe it's chapter 10 in verse 6, when the seventh seal has been opened and, uh, and the trumpets are sounding. And as a matter of fact, six of the trumpets have sounded and we're down to the very end. And it says, there shall be delay no longer. They said, how long? There shall be delay no longer. And we've been seeing judgments unfold. And it all comes to a climax in chapter 11. And, and then the kingdom of God is there. So what we're seeing here, I think you're right in connecting chapter 19 and the vengeance that we see uh, with chapter 6, but we're in the second telling of it here in chapter 19. Um, and so just to kind of keep, keep us in, in, uh, in, in knowing where we are in the structure of the book, maybe that's un, unnecessary for me to observe all that. But. Well, but, but I think it's helpful to see that repetition because how did chapter how did that seventh trumpet end in chapter 11 verses 15 through 19 do i have that right you know what is it the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our lord and of his christ he shall reign forever and ever look at what he says here in chapter 19 at the end of verse 6 what are they crying out hallelujah for the lord god omnipotent reigns in mm -hmm. other words god wins uh the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our of god mm -hmm. um uh, and so again yeah this is repetition that's being given for us those first 11 chapters and now we're going through it looking at it from different vantage points as well and so you have this marriage supper oh, oh i should also mention verse eight um uh, what was it that was given to those saints back in that fifth uh, fifth seal um uh, it says white a, robes. White robe. yeah, clean, yeah, a white clean white robe was given to them right mm -hmm. what are these people being granted to have in verse eight fine linens again i think the same idea um uh, you have that in chapter seven as well um uh, for those that are standing around praising god for salvation so here so here was it's, it's the, the the fine linen is given to the wife in this marriage scene mm -hmm. and i guess you're connecting say for example thinking in terms of ephesians 5 where the church is is the bride of christ so right. the people of god are the wife here yeah, yeah. You have this marriage lamb, a uh, marriage supper with the lamb talked about in verse nine. So, so yeah. Joe, Joe, as you get into this, I'm going to ask you to do something. And maybe, maybe you're you're prepared to do this, and maybe not. But help me understand uh, the timing of the marriage, uh, the time or the timing of the wedding. You know, we think of the church being established in Acts two. We think of Jesus uh, purchasing uh, his people. Uh, cleansing them as it's described, making them holy and without blemish, giving himself up for them as it's described in Ephesians 5. We think of him doing that at the cross. Here we're obviously down past the cross. We're, we're you know, a century or so later on, 
or when John's writing, say 70, 60, 60 years later, 60, 70 years later. And, and so yet it's, is he talking about a marriage that's already happened? Is he talking about a marriage that's going to happen when, when this great harlot is judged? What's help me understand that. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it's really simple just to answer it with the word. Yes. Um, (laughs) Again, I think that goes back to that specificity that we were describing earlier that we're looking for perhaps a date on a calendar. And I don't think that that's the way that God is operating. Think about Daniel two and Daniel seven in the days of this fourth kingdom. And so the, the, the God's kingdom was going to be established um, this may not be a, a, a perfect parallel, and somebody has a better one, please help me. I'll start using it. Um, but if we were to describe, when did World War II end? You know, did it end on uh, VE Day or VJ Day, victory over Europe, victory over Japan? Um, uh, you know, if, if we're talking about when was, or maybe we'll say, you know, some decisive battle midway or something like that, you know, well, that was really the end of it. And then yet, for a long time after that, there were still several skirmishes and battles that took place, uh, like what on the Philippine Islands and in other other locations, islands out in the Pacific. You know, when exactly did World War II end? We can't put a date on that. I like that illustration. How many? How many of you guys? I mean, it's only two of you, but <laughs> do you remember the War on Terror? Are we still in the War on Terror? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good one. Yeah, that's another one. I'm not sure. I, I don't think we're still in the war on terror unless we're always going to be in the war on terror. But there was after 9-11, there was declared this war on terror. Right. I'm not sure we're still in it, but but I'm not sure when it ended. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's a great, great comparison. Uh, very much more recent. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so, yeah, that, that's helpful, I think, to just understand that we're not looking at a date. If we're going to study it biblically, we're talking about during the time of that fourth kingdom. And that's exactly where we're at in the 70 ADs, uh, 70s AD um, uh, for the time of Vespasian and then the 90s for what Domitian is going to do. Go ahead, Jeff. I shouldn't say this, but never mind. I'm not going to say it. Yeah, that's how that. OK, that right there is how all bad things happen. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but. Yeah, well. <laughs> You ask anyone who's been canceled in the last two years, and they'll tell you it started with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, let's move on then, because oh, just just recognize that God is inviting people to this feast, and so this is an ongoing feast. I think again that contributes to the idea that we're trying to present here. This is an ongoing feast. People are being invited to it. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, verse nine. Um, uh, and so maybe keep in mind. We've talked about like there are two women, there are two cities, um, uh, there are two lambs, you know, there, there's the, 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 the lamb of God, and then there's this faux lamb that we talked about in Revelation 13, right? There, there's all of these uh, c- contrasts of, of, you know, two different options. One is evil and one is, is glorious and good. Well, here you have this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb, now, let's look at this next section in verses 11 through 21. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes like a flame of fire, his head were many crowns, and a name written that had no one uh, except himself. Uh, he was clothed with a 
robe dipped in blood. His name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Now here's another supper. That you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses and of those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These were these two were cast alive in a lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with a sword which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Two suppers contrasted in chapter 19. One of them, boy, you don't want to miss the invitation to have a marriage supper with the lamb. The other one, um, uh, if you're invited to that, if you're not a bird, being invited to that one means that you're the meal, you're the main course. Uh, and so destruction and judgment is being portrayed here. Clearly, this is a picture of Jesus. Uh, you know, every statement about him in verses 11 through 16, um, uh, you know, just scream for us John language uh, for, for Jesus. Um, and then the angel is calling together. Uh, I'm reminded, wasn't it uh, Ahaz uh, or, or Ahaz, yeah, Ahaz, right, that that's, was talking to the other king and said, uh, let not him who puts on his armor boast like him who takes it off. Um, you know, that's just such a great Ahab. line. Yeah. Is Ahab. Such a powerful line, for, unfortunately, from a bad person. Um, uh, but, you know, you ought not to brag about something if you can't follow it up. Yeah. Well, God has this angel saying, birds, <laughs> come on down. We're going to have this feast. And sure enough, he follows through with it. And so all of these enemies, and again, the picture is the same picture that we've been looking at before, the sea beast, the land beast. Here he's called a false prophet. Um, but it would certainly be identified as the same one who's working these signs. That's what chapter 13 talked about and receiving the mark. That's what chapter 13 talked about, worshiping his image. That's what chapter 13 talked about. All of that in verse 20. It's the same as chapter 13. And so you have them all gathered together to make war in verse 19. And you're going to see this great clash. But you don't. What happens? You know, verse 19, they all gather to make war against the Christ, against him who sits on the white horse. Then what's the next thing that takes place? The beast was seized. Yeah, they're, they're captured. You know, yep. uh, it, it is consistent throughout this book. Yep. As soon as you decide to fight against God, you have already lost. Yeah. Yep. That I like the way you put that. And we see that in the Old Testament, too. You know, if I can make a connection here, one of the things that, that I like to do when going through this is notice that in the Old Testament, uh, in several places, whether it's Daniel or Ezekiel or Joel, we see this picture of the future. We see a messianic uh, future when Christ will come into the world and establish his kingdom 
future from the Old Testament perspective, not future from our perspective. It, it happened in the first century. The Christ came into the world. He received his kingdom. In Daniel 7, you see one like a son of man came before the throne, before the ancient of days, and, and a kingdom was given unto him, kingdom and dominion. In Daniel chapter 2, you had this image that represented the four world empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then there's this stone cut out without hands that is the kingdom of God. And it comes into conflict with those powers. It strikes the image on its feet and the whole thing crumbles in the days of Rome and the church is established. And in, and in Ezekiel, you see God saying, I will pour out my spirit and I will set my king up. And he calls him David. He's not talking about David, the man who we know from the Old Testament, that David had been dead for 400 years. He's talking about the coming Christ. Uh, in Joel, you see the prophecy about the pouring out of God's spirit. In each of those instances, you see this picture of the coming kingdom Christ coming, and then you see this picture of conflict when the kingdom of Christ comes into conflict with these world powers, and the kingdom of Christ is established, and the world powers come to an end. In Ezekiel, uh, it's in chapters uh, 36 and 37, where you have the Messianic age anticipated, and then this judgment of the of the nations of the world uh, in chapters 38 uh, and 39. And, 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 and there's a connection there to what you just went through that I want to I call attention to. And you read in Revelation chapter 21, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 19, verse 17. And uh, I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in mid heaven, come and be gathered together unto the great supper of God that you may eat flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses. And, um, and then uh, does, I was thinking, okay, so eat the flesh of the kings and all. Now, if we go back to Ezekiel, when there was this picture of the messianic kingdom being established, and then God calling the enemies of God's people to judgment, then you get to chapter 39 of Ezekiel, verse 17. Uh, interesting, in both cases, it's verse 17, chapter 19, verse 17, Revelation, chapter 39, verse 17 in Ezekiel. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird, to assemble, uh, to every beast of the field, assemble, come, gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, and so on. And here's an observation I want to make. So often we see these graphic images in the book of Revelation and people go on a wild goose chase trying to find some explanation in history, either past or future, that, that it's going to represent. The sun, moon, and stars going dark. They start looking for some solar eclipse, some time when there was a great meteor shower or something in the future. And, and they say it can't have happened yet because we've not seen. And here's the thing. To the Christians in the first century, they see this language and they don't think, wow, we've never heard of that. That's got to be something that's like nothing ever. No, they thought, wow, we've heard of this before. We saw this language back in the Old Testament. And so it was language that was familiar to them and brought, brought to their minds a familiar concept, the victory of God's kingdom and the defeat of the enemies of God's people. Uh, and I think if we, we knew our Old Testaments better, it would prevent us from going on a wild goose chase to find some particular um, historical event that could be described as, 
Hey, there were, did you know there was a bunch of flock of birds that landed in Australia and ate 8,000 cows or something like that, you know? Yep. Yeah. And just touching on that, not only the explicit mentions of, you know, using prophetic language. And I do think you see the same thing in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, where when the destruction of the temple is being predicted, Jesus is borrowing judgment language from some, all those same prophets. They would have understood that. But um, not only that, but what we were talking about earlier, the nature of God's deliverance as well, like in the countless examples of the Israelites being delivered. So, uh, Sid Latham once said, God always wins, like, not at the last second, but it's always like some time goes by where it looks like the army of the, the enemy's army is going to win. And it's like, what is happening right now? Like, it looks like God is losing. So that is the first thing. But then the second thing is when God does come in, it's like a clean sweep. It's such a big win mm -hmm. that no one is left wondering if God got involved with it. Right. And is that not exactly what we're reading about here is everyone else around is looking around and saying the Christians have lost. Look at what Rome has done to them. Look at the persecution. Look at these awful things. Like when they were rejoiced over the death of the two witnesses. And John, in what he's saying, is revealing to the Christians, no, God wins and he's winning big. Uh, and so just those Old Testament images, uh, like Jeff is saying, I basically said the same thing Jeff did. I'm sorry. It and so the, the language of the prophets, that's what the book of Revelation is using. You know, and so not just Ezekiel 39, but Ezekiel 32 and verse 4, Jeremiah 19 and verse 7. Uh, you know, I, I think he's really, I think Jeff nailed the text. It is Ezekiel 39, 17 through 20. But it's even similar to a lot to other places. I won't say a lot, but to other places, this is the language of the prophets. It's the way that God describes his judging them. Um, uh, and so now we've, we've looked at these two different meal options, right? Um, either you're going to eat with the lamb or you're going to be the meal that the lamb is going to serve to the birds of the air. Um, th those are the two options that you have in chapter 19. And he talks about this lake of fire in verse 20. That usually gives people some fits. So let me just deal with that briefly. It's going to be mentioned again in chapter 20 and verse 10, and then in chapter 20 and verse 14, and in chapter 20 and verse 15, this idea of the lake of fire. And they're like, well, surely that's talking about the end of the world. Um, that, that can't be the defeat of Rome or Domitian or anything else. You know, that's the lake of fire. That, that has to be, you know, the final judgment and, and everybody being cast into hell, except it doesn't. Again, it's the language of the prophets. And just for time's sake, let me just mention one that I think is the maybe the most helpful for me. Uh, Isaiah 34, verse 8 and following. Isaiah 34 is talking about judgment on Edom. He mentions Basra in verse 6. Basra is one of the capital cities of Edom. And so in verse 8, he says, For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its stream shall be turned into pitch and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become a burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. It shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation, it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. And so you have this fire that is burning constantly in Basra, in Edom. And yet, it, you guys, surely you knew that pelicans and porcupines, that they like to live in, in the middle of fire. <laughs> oh, 
But the very next verse talks about porcupines and pelicans living there and jackals in verse 13 and wild beasts in verse 14 and wild goats in verse 14. You know, you have these animals that are dwelling there in the midst of a fire that is burning forever. It's not literal language. It's talking about complete destruction for the inhabitants of, of Basra, of, of Edom. That's prophetic language. It's the language of the prophets. When we read about a lake of fire or burning, you know, it's, it's following up from, I think, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then from that point on, God sort of uses that language as symbolic of utter destruction, of, of, of judgment upon a people, a family, a tribe, a city, a nation, that sort of thing. So uh, just, just touch on that briefly there for, for that, uh, that phrase. So I think this is judgment, but it's judgment upon who is what we have to ask in each context. And the judgment is upon the beast and the false prophet, not upon the end of the world. So let's uh, go ahead and keep on moving here. Verses, uh, chapter 20, how about verses 1 through 10? One of you guys want to read that, please? Uh, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and Christ will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, and so now we read about uh, Satan, uh, that dragon. We talked about him uh, back in uh, chapter 12, uh, the dragon, the devil, Satan, all those words used back there. Very and he's clear. bound for a thousand years. And uh, at the same time that he is bound for a thousand years, we see that the, that the dead are resurrected and are going to reign with the Lord for a thousand years. Or, I'm sorry, not resurrected, but, but they're going to, let me back up, I'm going to confuse two verses here. Um, uh, those who had been beheaded, uh, verse four, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God who had not worshiped the beast and his image. And so these were the, these are the heaven dwellers. These are not the ones who are uh, worshiping the beast and they're going to live and reign with Christ for right. a thousand years. And so the time frame that Satan is going to be bound is a time frame for which these saints who like the souls under the altar, again, they're going to reign with Christ. 
And so from this text, and I think this text primarily comes the idea of premillennialism and, uh, you know, teaching about a thousand year reign right. and that sort of thing on earth. Um, uh, and there's just a lot of difficulties with any doctrine that comes from this text. And that is you're using prophetic language to, to, to base it, uh, you know, a, a very firm doctrine. Uh, I think that's pretty complicated. And not to mention what happens after the thousand years? They quit Same. raining. That would be the idea. Yeah, true. So I guess I have a question, guys. Um, pre the premillennial doctrine, first off, why don't you break down just what the word premillennial means? Well, you're a millennial, so anybody who's before you is premillennial. <laughs> so, Definitely you too, then. <laughs> so millennium, of course, is a thousand years. And, and so premillennium refers to the idea that Jesus return, Jesus promised to return, that his return will take place before the thousand years. And when they refer to the thousand years, they're referring to this passage in Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. So their idea is, if they're premillennials, they're saying Jesus is going to come back before this thousand-year reign takes place that's described in Revelation 20 and verse 5. And there's another perspective that is post-millennialist, and post-millennialists believe that Jesus Christ will come back at the end of this thousand-year reign that's described in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 5. Um, generally speaking, when somebody accepts the label premillennial or post-millennial, they are taking this passage to refer to a, a literal thousand years. Certainly, if they take the term premillennial and accept that label, they believe this passage is talking about a literal 1,000 years on earth where Jesus is reigning in Jerusalem. Um, and I'll tell you the truth, I'm not even sure people who take that view that that the, the exponent, the, the those who propound this doctrine, that they theologically start here. They may theologically start with the idea that there's a thousand-year reign of Christ, but they are really starting with the, the idea that uh, there is a, a Jewish kingdom and that there are promises to Abraham that, that still have to be fulfilled and that God has to still accomplish what he said to Abraham when he said, I'll give you the land forever, and that the Jews have yet to accomplish that. And um, so there's a lot, there's a lot wrong with that doctrine. I guess it's not our purpose to get into it. But I think where we need to start is what Joe said a moment ago. This is figurative language. Uh, it's not meant to be taken as a precise thousand years from point A to point B. And, and then you've, you've got to, you've got to come to terms with when does this rain take place? Is, is it a rain that's already taking place or not? And, and, and really, to, the, to me, the foundational question is, is Jesus king? Yeah, is, that's right. is Jesus king? That's right. And, and he said he is, so I'm not going to argue with him. That's right. Um, his Paul kingdom has is. come. So many passages in non-prophetic language texts, you know, talk about we've been translated in the kingdom of the son of his love, Colossians 1, and so many other passages talk yes. about Jesus reigning. And I think what's key, what you said there is really important that the non-prophetic places where it's like, it's not even what's in the scope of discussion because it is just an established fact that Jesus is reigning. That's yeah. 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 And Ephesians two is the one that came to my mind. We were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You've been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And and even in this book, the book has already identified that these saints are living and reigning. Remember the the kingdom of priests, Revelation 1, 6, Revelation 5, 10, and I think there's another one as well. 12.10, now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. And, And that's talking about when the son, the child is caught up and the dragon is cast down. Right. Um, and, and if I could, you go back just to the beginning of the gospel being publicly preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and Peter talks about Christ having ascended to the right hand of God. That's talking about the beginning of his reign. It was back in the 110th Psalm, which Peter then quotes, where David said, the Lord said unto my Lord, to the Christ, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. Um, and, and so this is, and rule in the midst of your enemies. And so this is talking about the beginning of Christ's reign when he sits at the right hand of God in first Corinthians 15, he reigns until death is defeated, uh, which is at the resurrection. And so, yeah, Christ is reigning and chase. I appreciate your point from Ephesians chapter two. Um, we've been raised up with Christ in the heavens. And so, yeah. And so Satan is bound. Satan is, is limited. He's on a leash. He, he, there's only so much that he can do. Um, uh, he is bound. He is cast uh, into the bottomless pit. He's shut up. There's a seal set on him. He, he has lost his power when the sea beast and the land beast were defeated. He's lost his power. And so I think that the idea, and this is, this is just my thought. I'm not going to fight with anybody about it. But I think that the thousand years is symbolic, like that you'll be faced tribulation 10 days for the yeah. church in Smyrna. It's yeah. a time period, but it's really not meant to be a time period. It's a concept. But it's, also, it's a contrast. The tribulation is 10 days. The rain is a thousand years. Right. So this tribulation, remember, the book of Revelation started with John saying, I'm a participant with you in the tribulation. And, and now what we're seeing is that tribulation is going to be 10 days. The kingdom is going to be a thousand years. In other words, we're going to get through this and it's going to be relatively short compared to the, to the reign, to the dominion of God's kingdom. Yeah. Exodus, God is faithful to a thousand generations. That 4,000 and first generation, God's not going to be faithful. To that. <laughs> you know, God owns a cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm 50 and verse 10. What about that? What about the next hill? Who owns those? Yeah, the the idea of a thousand, you know, if I've had to explain this a thousand times, (laughs) you know, we we use that language, don't we? Yeah, we do. Uh, My my, my kid asked why a thousand times today, you know, and we just mean, whoa, right? And, And so that's the idea here. Satan is bound. He's bound. You know, you say it a thousand times. And and the saints live and reign with Christ a thousand years. You know, it's 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 just a great, great victory that is given. And then even in whatever Satan is permitted to do, what happens to him? And again, people get scared over this, but it's meant to be a, a, a statement of victory. The thousand years is released. Uh, he's released in verse seven. He gathers together another army. They go up and surround the city. And what happens? They're defeated again. Fire comes out. Again, you, you have that sort of build up. You're, you're hearing the, the music crescendo in verse 9. They went up with the breath of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints, beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. You know, as, as quickly as they plot against God, they're defeated again. And so that's the story of Satan over and over throughout the Bible. He gathers together some force, some followers, and then 
they're defeated. That's just the way that, that the, the story goes all the way through. Could you talk a little bit about the first resurrection and the second death? So you've already mentioned a couple of times, Jeff, accurately so, is uh, Ezekiel. And so we have this story in Ezekiel of the future, and he's describing, you know, they're in captivity in the time of Ezekiel. They're talking, they're looking forward to a return from the captivity, and then they're looking forward to a greater re release from captivity. And so you have this image of these bones coming to life in Ezekiel 37. And, uh, you know, that's the hope of the nation of Israel. We, we turn over, and by the time we get to chapter 39, it's identified that it's not just the house of Israel, but the Gentiles are going to come into it, and that the whole world is going to know. I think that's the language that he's describing here for them. This resurrection is, is the hope of God's people. Um, uh, I, I would just compare that to Ezekiel 37. Would you connect it at all with, for example, going back to Ephesians 2, uh, we, we were raised with him, or... Uh, Romans 6, raised up to walk in newness of life. Uh, would you connect the, the, the um, first yeah. resurrection to when one becomes a Christian and he's alive from the dead? Yes. And, and so it, when you, if you are alive in Christ, you need not to fear any other death. You know, there, there, there's, there's no separation that's going to come. So uh, when, you, when you become alive, and I'm going to lead you down a path here, and if you don't believe this, say so. But if the first resurrection is when we are made alive in Christ, we're made alive from having been dead. We were made dead by our sins. So would that be the first death? I, I think so. And then the uh, second death know. would be when you experience the wrath of God? Right. You, right. Okay. Yeah. And, and so there's not going to be any fear of that. Matthew 25, you know, other passages, um, okay. uh, you know, you're not going to be cast the eternal uh, everlasting uh, fire, everlasting punishment. Okay. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. So verses 11 through 15, let's read that. One of you guys want to read that, please? And I saw a great white throne and him that sat upon it, whose, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, even the lake of fire. And if any was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. And so when we read this passage, people are like, well, surely now we're talking about the end of the world. And yet, let me just bring up a slide that at least helps me, whether it helps anybody else or not. I don't know. Um, uh, see if I can. Um, it's saying that I can't share. You're um, sharing. I am? Okay. All right. Uh, but you're not in uh, presentation mode. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm getting a, a sharing. So is that showing up now? Yep. Okay, good. So uh, this idea of chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, this great judgment scene, um, uh, look at this language that's used in Daniel 7. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated, his garment was white as snow, his hair of his head uh, uh, like pure wool, thrown a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fiery stream issued, came forth from before the throne. Thousands, thousands, minutes turned, 10,000 times, 10,000 stood before him, court was seated, books were opened. Uh, so this is the same chapter, Daniel 7, 
that we talked about the four beasts and during the time of that fourth beast, God was going to establish his kingdom, right? We talked about that back in chapter 13 and in verse, uh, uh, in chapters 13 and 17. But uh, let's see if I can, why am I not? Okay, here we go. So look at the comparisons that are given with this text then. In uh, Daniel 7, it's the context of the fourth kingdom. That's the same context as uh, Revelation, according to chapters 13 and 17. God is seated on a throne in Daniel 7 and verse 9. It's down there at the bottom. You can see the, the text there. The Ancient of Days was seated. Um, that's the same thing that's happening here in this verse. Uh, books were opened, Daniel 7 and verse 10 and Revelation 20 and verse 12. The beast is slain, Revelation 7 and verse 11, Revelation 19 and verse 20. There's a burning flame, Daniel 7 and verse 11, and Revelation 19, 20, and what you just read here in chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. Uh, to me, that's rather remarkable. Um, we're being told, again, the timing of this, like we've been told all the way through the book, that this is dealing with that time of the fourth kingdom and John just practically plagiarizes this, uh, this paragraph from Daniel 7, verses 9 through 12. It, it's, it's identical. It's nearly identical, I should say. Um, I don't want to be, I don't want to exaggerate. But you have to be able to make a connection with these. I, I think honestly, honesty demands that you at least say these are extremely similar. And then you look at all the rest of the things we've pointed out from this book. It's of revelation. It's during the time of this fourth kingdom that these things are happening. This is not end of world language, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. It is judgment language. And we've already noted, looking future tense, it's judgment on that fourth kingdom and the beast that was going to be reigning during the time of that fourth kingdom, Domitian, I believe. Um, Daniel was looking forward to that time. John is seeing it present tense, Revelation 17. And so, um, I just think that that's really powerful to, uh, to see those, and it kind of takes away, at least for me, some of the fear of this chapter um, and of this section. You know, we're not looking at the end of the world here. We're, we're looking at a, at, a, at a judgment that is being pronounced upon uh, Domitian, I believe, but, but we can just say the sea beast because later on there's going to be other kinds of Domitians or other kinds of sea beasts that are going to well, I appreciate, I appreciate you walking us through those parallels. This is a brand new thought to me, what you're saying right here. And I'm going I'm to be interested in looking at this. Uh, as a matter of fact here, um, I'll show you what I did. Uh, we're out of time, I guess. Maybe I don't have time to show you what I did. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I'm teaching Revelation on Wednesday nights here at Exxon right now. And so I'm going to want to consider this. And I've already uh, grabbed a screenshot of your slide there. Yeah. And... Uh, slipped it into my presentation. I did put a picture of you there. So it's, I'm not plagiarizing. Wow, saying, this is perfect. Joe saying this. And so, but I'm going to look at that. Thanks a lot. I like having my picture beside a phrase that says the great judgment scene. Hmm. Um, uh, but yeah. Uh, and, and let me just mention really quickly, anybody that does want any of my slides, I'm happy to share them. Um, uh, they're on the Honesdale Church of Christ website. There's uh, I taught through the book of Revelation uh, there a couple of years ago. So I've got slides that I'm happy to share. They're nothing fantastic, but I mean, I didn't have to do a screen grab to get that. I could have just asked for it. You didn't. You didn't. And I'll I'll give them to you, Jeff, for the same price I give to everybody else. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. All right, folks. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Chase.